Welcome to Christ Chapel College, the college outreach of Christ Chapel Bible Church in Fort Worth, Texas. We hope everyone experiences what Jesus calls abundant life. So we unapologetically point to Him as the source of life and joy. If you're a college student in the Fort Worth area, we'd be stoked to connect with you. Find out more at ChristChapelCollege.org and on Instagram at ChristChapelCollege. Here's what we're going to do. We are starting the book of Hebrews, um, and Hebrews is an unbelievable book. Uh, I spent the summer, honestly, studying it and just uh, wrestling with it. There are some really, really deep and really, honestly, for me, difficult passages. I had never, I've never preached through the whole book of Hebrews, and so I'm excited about the challenge. It'll be me and the rest of our team. There'll be some other guys up here preaching it. Um, and so I'm excited about it. I want to share a little story to help kind of set the table for what we're doing. Um, World War II, if there's any World War II buffs in here, World War II ended in 1945. And so World War II, we were at war, the Allies were at war with Germany and Italy and then also Japan on the Eastern Front. And specifically uh, in, in Japan, I believe Japan surrendered in September of 1945. Uh, but one of the things that was really interesting, this has been documented before and maybe you've heard this story. There was a guy, let me not get his name wrong, his name is Hiro Onada. And he was a lieutenant in the Japanese army. And he was put uh, in, a, in a Philippine island with his brigade to hold down this island. And the Japanese had taken over all of these islands uh, in the Pacific. Uh, and as the Americans and the other allies were, were, were invading those islands and kind of pushing them back, he held his ground, held his ground, held his ground. Eventually, um, in 1945, Japan surrendered. And this guy and his brigade refused to, to surrender. Uh, they just refused it. I mean, all of his generals had surrendered. Um, the country was now at peace. We had a, a ceasefire with Japan. And so in 1945, the war ended. Um, Hero and his soldiers, they didn't surrender until 1974. And so for almost, what, 20, 55, 65, so, so almost 30 years, right? Like almost 30 years, he stayed bunkered in in this small island in the Philippines uh, with a few of his troops and just stayed bunkered in. And in his mind and in his world and his life, he was still completely a battle, right? He was still at war. He was still, I mean, he was even the, the Philippines, who, the Filipinos who lived there, he was raiding their camps and things like that. And so it wasn't until 1974. And the reason I share that story is I think it, multiple reasons. I, I want you to just think about what that would be like. If you were just in an exhausted battle, right? Fighting for your life, um, struggling, literally you're, you're getting no supplies and you've just got to keep yourself alive and that's on you. Uh, completely cut off, at war, constantly anxious and the directions and the orders from your generals and from your commanders and from your leaders just never get there. You just never really have clarity on the fact that, hey, you can stop fighting, the war is over. And that's what happened with this guy. And he ended up uh, finally figuring it out and, and admitted surrender and was actually celebrated as a, as a hero uh, just for his stubbornness, I guess, um, which I don't blame him. And the book of Hebrews is going to do this. The book of Hebrews for us is going to be clear marching orders to say, what are we to believe? What are we to do? Who is our commander? What does this look like? How can we approach him? And so really it is getting our orders and how those orders then dictate our actions so that we don't miss it, so that we don't live this life of exhaustion and miss it. The book of Hebrews, we don't know the author. 
Uh, there's a lot of speculation of different people, but we don't really know who wrote this book, but we know it was an apostle. We know it was somebody who um, has been authorized uh, to be near and to have spoken on behalf of the Holy Spirit. And so we know it's authoritative. And we also know it was written to Jews, the Jewish people, Hebrew people who came from the Hebrew context, which would have meant they knew the Old Testament. So as we study this book, we're going to spend a lot of time jumping back into the Old Testament and trying to dissect some stuff because their context would have been coming from the Old Testament and exactly what it looked like to follow God in the Old Testament. And now they have shifted their life and they've begun to follow Jesus. And what does that look like? We see in verse 1, verse 1 and 2, this is how the entire book starts. The author says, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these days, he has spoken to us by his son. And so we see right off the bat in the very first, the very first verse and a half, we see the author say, hey, all of the Old Testament, all of the way that you have been spoken to through the prophets, through all the prophets of old, that is how we knew how to discern our marching orders from our God. But now there is a pivot. And historically, there is now a pivot to where now he is no longer just speaking to us through the prophets. He is speaking to us through his son, Jesus. And so the big idea that we're going to camp out on is verses 1 through 4. 1 through 4 of this chapter, we're going to spend the majority of the time on here this morning. And really what's going to happen in verses 1 through 4 is we're going to get um, really um, a framework, not just of, of what those verses mean, but in those four verses, we're going to get a framework for what the rest of the book is going to do in these first four verses. And, and then we're also, I want to make sure that I cover everything. And so we're also going to uh, cover 5 through 14, which is, um, I'll explain what, what the author does here in a second. But here's the three questions. You ready? Here's the three questions that not only this passage is going to answer, but the rest of the book we will spend zooming in, looking at, and figuring out how this should change our lives. And that's these questions. Who Jesus is, we're going to see in, in this passage. We're going to see a glimpse of who Jesus is. We're going to see how I'm sorry, we're going to see what Jesus has or is currently doing, right? What did Jesus do or what is he currently doing? We're going to see that here and we're going to see it through the rest of the book. And lastly, we're going to ask the question and see an answer to the question, what does that mean for us? If this is who Jesus is, if this is what he has either done or is doing, what does that mean for us? So let's jump in. Verses 1 through 4, I'm going to read, and then we're going to pick apart verse by verse and really zoom in on these incredible characteristics, starting with the question, who Jesus is. This is what it says. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sin, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. That is a mouthful. Those four verses really do set the table for the, the, the entire book. And they're going to answer those questions. And so let's just jump into it, starting with this. Who Jesus is. 
who Jesus is. We see it right here in this passage. First, verse two, that he is the heir of all things. And so what I'm about to do is I'm about to overwhelm you with six characteristics that we see in these verses. And I'm just gonna overwhelm you with, here's what the word of God says, here's what the word of God says, and then we're gonna explain, okay, what's that mean for us? But we see right there that he is the heir of all things, right? There's nothing that exists, nothing that exists in this world. If we believe the Bible, if we believe this is true, that means there's nothing that exists that Jesus doesn't care about, right? As an heir, right? If you were an heir of a manor, I don't know what you become heirs of, but if you were an heir of a fortune, right? You would care greatly about that. You would care about it. You would, you would tend to it. You would desire it. You would want to understand it and know it. And Jesus, it says in verse two, is the heir of all things. Nothing he doesn't care about, including you, right? Including you, including your life, including your college experience, there's nothing he doesn't care about. Two, we see in, in, verse, in verse two right there that he through whom also he created the world. So we see that Jesus created the world, that God used Jesus to create the world. And, and this concept is mind-blowing because December 25th, we celebrate Christmas. He probably wasn't really born on December 25th, but you get the idea. 2,000 years ago, we see that Jesus, we celebrate the birth, the incarnation of Jesus Christ, and that he was born in a manger, and we sing songs about it, and it's a big deal, and we, um, we, we bless our economy by buying each other a lot of gifts. That's what we do in America when that day comes around, and, and, that, and that is true, right? There was an incarnation that happened there, but also Hebrews gives us this look of like he has always been there. He was there at creation. So we celebrate this incarnation, but also we know within the Trinity, this mind-blowing concept that I'm going to try to illustrate here in a little bit, that he was always there. He was always there. He has always been there. Um, he was born in a manger, but he was also there at creation. Um, how we wrap those two things together um, should produce worship, and I'll, I'll show you how in just a second. Third thing we see is right there in verse 3. Literally, it says, he is the radiance of the glory of God. That is who Jesus is. He is the radiance. If, if the glory of God is a flashlight, Jesus is the beam. Jesus is the radiance. He is this personification of the glory of God. For we see, and I love this line, he is the imprint of God's nature. The imprint of God's, the exact imprint of his nature. So when you think about the the characteristics and the nature of God. He is kind, he is holy, he is gracious, right? He is, he is truth. All of those characteristics and the nature of our God, all of those characteristics, they have a heartbeat. Truth. Truth, the characteristic of truth has a heartbeat and that heartbeat is Jesus. He is the exact imprint of God's character. Mind-blowing stuff in Hebrews. We also see that he is the power behind the universe. The power behind the universe. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to illustrate these the best I can here in just a second. But let me do the sixth one because um, in verse, verse 4, we see having become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. And so we see that Jesus also, again, still just in the first four verses, is superior to the angels. And what the author's going to do, and I'm going to go on kind of this rabbit trail just to zoom in on that last point, because what happens in chapter one 
we have verse one through four, which is this big picture of these mind-blowing, he's this, he's this, he's this, he's this. But then when he gets to the superior to angels, remember, he's talking to a bunch of people who, um, they were of the Jewish background. This was a really big deal. They had a theology and a philosophy of angels. So verses five through the rest of the chapter, verses 14, you're gonna get this argument for why he's better than the angels and why that's a big deal. So I'm just gonna read it all through you. So just hear this in context. This is the author saying, hey, let me tell you why I know he's better than the angels because that's a big deal. Verse five, he says, for to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And so what's gonna happen is he's gonna keep referencing these Old Testament passages and tying Jesus back to Jesus is more authoritative. Then he says, or again, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son, right? He never told angels that. Verse six, and again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. And of the son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And, mind exploded yet, and you, Lord, laid the foundations of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment, like a robe. You will roll them up like a garment. They will be changed. But you, Jesus, you are the same, and your years will have no end. And to which of the, ev- the angels did he ever say, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool to your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? I want you guys to understand what the word of God is doing. Verses one through four sets the table for not just who is Jesus, what has he done, and what's that mean for us. It sets the table for the rest of the book. And then verses five through 14 is this illustrative argument that the author makes. He's, He's making his case. Let me tell you this. He's better than the angels for this reason and this reason and this reason. Did he ever tell the angels this or this? He is setting up the authority of Jesus Christ. That's what's happening. The authority of Jesus Christ is being put on display. So Here's what I want to do to try to illustrate this because um, this is all theological and heady and um, in some ways, if I'm not careful, very impersonal because I'm like, okay, all these cool characteristics of God. So if I can, let me go back and have the screen that has all six of those characteristics. And this is the best way that I can think to illustrate this. Um, It's the whiteboard. I usually do this on a napkin. Um, and so if you've been around me for a while, I've maybe done this before. Um, go with me. This illustration is going to break down in some places. But here's what I love to do. Let's say I'm a really good artist, right? <laughs> Which I'm not, uh, but let's say I am, right? So here's my stick figure guy, right? And he's going to have a stick figure friend. This is my stick figure friend right here. Uh, and we're going to draw a tree over here with a hole for a squirrel to live. Here's a squirrel. Bushy tail. Squirrel. Head. Do squirrels have pointy ears? Pointy? No? Rounded? No? We're just going to say no, no ears. We're going to say no ears but a smiley face. He lost his ears in World War II. So there he is. All right. We're going to add some green to this tree. Oh, no green. It's dead to me. Okay. It's going to be a blue. It's going to be a, no, I'm going to say blue. It's going to be a red tree. There are red trees out there in fall. Yeah. 
not in Texas, but in other states. Okay, so here you got a red tree, and now some blue fluffy clouds. Here's a cloud. Here is a cloud. Okay, this is my drawing. Here is how I want to illustrate this. Let's say in like full Pixar style, right, after closing time, common grounds, my creation, I created this, impressive, I know, this thing comes to life, right? And these two characters, right, are talking to each other, right? This is their existence. They're on this board. I've given them a tree. I've given them an earless squirrel friend, clouds, the whole thing. Um, and they are like a Pixar movie talking. You know, they're, they're in their zany adventures and they're doing whatever and they're, and they're talking about life. Let's say these two stick figures that I created are trying to describe me, right? They here are, exist on this canvas that I've given them and they are trying to describe me. So a two-dimensional two figures, and I have given them black, red, uh, and blue, right? I've given them a squirrel. I haven't given them much else, right? And so they only have the tools of their two dimension to describe me, right? And then let's say they're talking, and they're like, man, we know we didn't create ourselves. There must have been some sort of creator. There must have been something bigger. Ah, sorry, you guys didn't see my great drawing. There you go. Just didn't want you guys to miss out. It's greatness. Um, Right, and they're trying to describe how did we get here, right? Where did we come from, and what is what does our creator look like? And they, if they're good creations, are going to maybe do really good due diligence to figure out, like, okay, we only have the words. We we are two dimensional figures trying to not only how, how would they describe me, who has joints and pores and hair follicles and you know, dimensions to me, and then also trying to describe even this room and a group full of people, and then a city, and then trying to describe an ocean, right, and a, and a, and a solar system. What we see in Hebrews, when, when we hear things like, man, he's the heir of all things, he created the world, he's the radiance of God's glory, right, what's happening is we're saying, okay, he is, right, he is the heir, right, he is the creator, uh, he is God's glory personified, right? We see uh, he's the imprint of God's nature. God's nature. Um, he's powerful. Right? All of these things. He's superior to the angels. And so we have all these words, and what we see in Hebrews 1 through 4, verses 1 through 4, is we see created beings trying to wrap our brain around a God who is so far beyond us. And a God who, if he created us in all of our dimensions, in all of our range of emotions and world and complexities and the way our brain works, that we still, we still don't even understand how we as created beings fully work. And we, as created beings, are getting to look at Hebrews and say, man, what? Who is this God? Who is this creator? If we are these complex three-dimensional beings, how much more mind-blowingly dimensionally different is our creator? Is the God who breathed life, who created, who sustains life, who sustains life from a creation standpoint uh, and, and also who is intimate with us and draws near to us? And I mean, how do we wrap our minds around that? And that is why the personification of God saying, you will never be able to wrap your minds around this. Right? And that's the reason that he said, I am going to then, I'm going to then incarnate myself, put myself, this holy, multidimensional God who, who you couldn't, re if we were able 
to really understand who God is and who the Trinity is in the, in the vastness of who he is as a creator and a designer and his holiness and his power and his glory and his supremacy, then we would have put him in a box. So if God, the Father, and the Trinity make really good, clean sense to you, and if it's an easy Sunday school lesson, then you have probably massively reduced who he is. So that's why the personification of God's character showed up in the person of Jesus. He said, you'll never, so I'm going to show up to you as God in the flesh, humble myself to the person of Jesus Christ. And all of these characteristics are still tied to him. He is creator. He is supreme. He is the heir of all things. He is the power behind the world. That's who he is. And really what this is called, when a bunch of imperfect people are trying to wrap our minds around this God and who his character is, that's called worship. This passage, this concept should produce worship. Worship is not a singing song so that we're emotionally stirred. That happens, and that's a good thing, and that's a part of God's design in worship. But worship is us just trying to sing of something we don't fully understand. Said, Holy Spirit, with this spirit that we don't understand, work through me to give glory to a God that I can't fully wrap my head around, and even, not even just singing, but just in awe of who he is. My hope is that we read Hebrews and we worship when we see concepts that he is this amazing, there at the beginning, creator of the world, radiance of God's glory, perfect imprint of God's nature. Would that produce worship in us? That is who Jesus is. So now what did he do? What did he do or what is he doing, right? What is that? And we see it in this passage, right? We see um, after making Verse three, after making purification for sin, he sat down at the right hand of majesty on high. So right off the bat, we see that Jesus has made purification for our sin, right? That's, that's one of the things that he has done. I'm gonna move this back over here, right? He's made purification for our sins. Um, and, and what does that mean, right? What do we do with that? Um, we believe, uh, we believe that we are sinners. Uh, Francis, I think, said it really well in the welcome. We're imperfect people. We're broken. There is sin in us, um, and we need purification. That's, that's, um, that's kind of a starting point for the gospel and for the grace of God to really take effect. Um, and if you're here this morning, and you feel like, man, I don't know that that's a concept that I feel, right? Like, you don't feel vulnerable to this idea that you feel like you need a purification of sin, um, that you don't feel maybe that your default is, is sin. That's, um, that's a very real position um, that I think a lot of us fall into. Uh, we fall into a position of self-righteousness, uh, or we fall into a place of maybe just spiritual blindness where we think, I, I don't really need it that much. I'm pretty good. Compared to these guys, compared to those girls, I'm doing pretty good. I don't really need it. And so to the degree at which we understand the weight of our sin is to the degree at which we will appreciate the fact that we have been purified from that sin. And if you're here this morning and you're like, you know, I don't, I don't feel this weight of my sin. I don't feel like I need this purification. I love that you're here. I'm not going to beat you up this morning. I'm not going to preach harder to make sure you know how sinful you are, how far you are. Um, I, there will be weeks where we really dig into that because that's where the text is going to take us. Um, but I would say, man, I'm praying for you. Um, we are sinners, right? We, I need purification, right? There's, there's the, there's the obvious, um, 
sins in my life, uh, like pride, like lust, uh, like selfishness. Those are sins that I struggle with, that I have to submit to the Lord, that I have to find purification for um, once and for all through the blood of Jesus, but also in my maturity. Just because I was saved doesn't mean they go away instantly and it's just a switch that got flipped in my life. It's a, it's a, it's a thing that once and for all happens, but then it's this dimmer in my life that we've talked about before in this room, this dimmer to slowly walk out of those things more and more and more and four steps forward and two steps back and that life of maturity in Christ. And so there are those ones, but then there's also all these subtle sins that like I don't even know are there and they creep up and they surprise me. S- sins like my own self-righteousness, thinking I'm doing great and I don't really need him and I'm better than, you know, I don't really, I don't need to depend and lean on his grace in the same way and um, that's dangerous and it's offensive to God. Um, my, there's places in my heart that are just apathetic towards who he is and what he's calling me to do and God in his kindness will reveal those to me at times. Of Ben, there's some apathy here that isn't for me it's sinful and it's selfishness and I need to be pure, purified from that. We are, we are sinners who need purification and here's the thing, we have it, right? We have it. In Christ, we have it. I don't need to wake up. I went to bed last night praising God that I can rest in his grace, not overwhelmed by the fact that I am a sinner still in process, but overwhelmed by the grace of the fact that I've been adopted and I'm fully loved and he is working in me. And so I went to bed resting in his grace. And I woke up this morning praising God for his grace. I'm not, I'm not adequate to stand on the stage and preach to you guys. I'm not holy enough in and of myself. But his grace says, hey, Ben, you're imperfect, but I'm going to work through you for my glory, not for yours. And that is this life that we live. And so if you're in Christ, you have that purification. And we know this because of verses like this, that he purified us. Also, we see it in 1 Corinthians 6.11. I'm just going to shotgun these on you. Such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, right? You were matured, but you were justified. You were made right in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of God. We see it in Titus. Paul says this in chapter 2. Who gave himself, Jesus, referencing Jesus, who gave himself to us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. And then 1 John 1, 7 says, but if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we will have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all righteousness. After making purification, Hebrews says, after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. This, this, word there. It is this past tense idea that Jesus purified us of our sins once and for all, and then he sat down. So what has Jesus done? What is he doing? He purified us of our sins, and then it says he sat down the right hand of the majesty on high. He sat down at the right hand of God, and why is that significant? Here's why it's significant. Um, It's significant for this reason. A priest in the Old Testament who would go into the temple, we're going to talk about this a lot later on in the series, but he would go and he would make a sacrifice for the purification of the people. That's what the priest's role was. On behalf of the people, I'm going to make this sacrifice. A priest never sat down, right? Like you do not sit down, 
right? Like you are, if you're in the temple, it is holy and reverent and you approach him and you do, there is no sitting down. And why this is so massively significant here, buried in verse three at the beginning of Hebrews, is that it says, Jesus purified the sins of the world and then he sat down, meaning it was done. Sat down at the right hand of God and the work was finished, right? That's what it means. Who went to the TCU game yesterday? Okay, cool. All right, put your hands up if you went to the TCU game. Who stayed until the very end of the fourth quarter? Yeah. Why? 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 Because the game was over, right? Like the game was over by halftime. They literally cut the third and fourth quarters short, right? There was, there was no coming back. The game was completely finished. And so the fact that you guys left, there's no judgment. This is a safe place, right? You're not bad fans. The game was over maybe at the end of the first quarter, but definitely by halftime, right? It was over. It was finished. And you knew that. And you had that confidence. And you knew you weren't going to miss some nail-biter comeback. It was over. And you walked out of there happy. It's been done. It's been finished. Even though technically the game was still being played, you knew victory had happened. Man, this guy in Japan, he, he stayed bunkered in for like 30 years because he just didn't believe it was finished. This exhausting life, living on the run, fighting and fighting and fighting because he didn't believe it was finished. What's this mean for us? What does this four verses, the truth of Hebrews, who Jesus is and all of his authority and mind-blowing characteristics the fact that he purified our sins, the fact that it's done, what does that mean for us? First, it means that we're made pure, right? Obviously, real simply, it means that if you are in Christ, if you've surrendered your life to Christ, it means that you have a God who has made you pure. And if you hear that, maybe that's not a new thing to hear in church, and you hear that and you're like, yeah, God's grace and he covers my sin and all those things. And you hear that and you think, yeah. But if inside of you there's this voice, this voice that says, yeah, but you don't really know. Ben, you don't know what I've done or where I've been. That voice, you have that shame that you continue to carry around. You have that sin that you continue to struggle with, that continues to haunt you, that you continue to feel chained by, shackled by. We either believe this or we don't who Jesus is, authoritative, above the angels, there at the creation, the exact imprint of the glory of God, and he did what he said he was going to do, and he purified the sins once and for all for those who say, I don't want religion, I don't want striving, I, don't, I just want Jesus, and I want to surrender my life to Jesus and accept the grace of God, and accept the gift of the Holy Spirit, which seals me once and for all, seals me to be purified, even as I'm this dimmer switch, growing, 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 I am sealed because the work is finished. And that's the second thing that it does for us. Not only it makes us pure, but finishes the work. It means that the work is done. It means there's no more room for shame if we're in Christ. It means there's no more room for striving. I gotta do better. But all of a sudden, the work is done. And now my life of hopefully increasing godliness comes out of a response to what he has fully, completely finished in me. And now the way I live my life, yeah, 
making better choices, bringing him glory, doesn't come from some weird ladder I'm trying to climb unsuccessfully. It comes as a response to the gospel that says, Jesus, you have done this. You have fully forgiven me. Forgive yourself. Accept his grace. Uh, In John, I'm going to end on this story. In John chapter 8, there's this awesome story of uh, this woman who Jesus is teaching his his guys and his Pharisees show up as well. And they bring this woman in John chapter 8. I'm just going to paraphrase it for you. But spend some time on John chapter 8, verses 1 through 11. This woman gets brought forward. And she's the woman caught in adultery. Maybe you heard this story. She's brought before him. She's caught in adultery. So could you imagine the humiliation and the sin? I mean, she's dragged, a half-naked woman dragged in front of Jesus, huge crowds, and they're testing him, is what it says in the scripture, that they have dragged and they've thrown her before, before Jesus. And they said, hey, this woman has been caught in adultery, right? She's, she's cheating on her husband. The law, the Old Testament, like there are rules for this. There's standards, there's godliness, there's ways to live our life. And she does not measure up to it. She has failed. She's blown it. What do you do? You're this person who's speaking here with such authority. Like you have the answers. Like you could speak on behalf of God. And so these really angry men say, okay, what are you going to do here? The law is really clear on what the consequences. The consequences for her sin would be stoning. Really clear. There's not, it's a pretty black and white thing. And Jesus, the author of all things, Right? He says, who of you is without sin? And who, whoever of you is without sin, you get to cast the first stone. It gets quoted a lot, right? And so then we see one by one men, it says, starting with the oldest men to the youngest men, they start dropping their stones and they know I'm a sinner too. And a lot of times that this passage gets taken to be like, oh, no one should judge anyone. And if you have sin, you shouldn't hold somebody else to a godly standard. That's not the point of this right? We, we should all, if we're brothers in Christ and sisters in Christ, we, we should care enough to love and hold each other to godly standards because we care about each other. So this isn't a, this isn't a passage to just let us all off the hook um, if, if we're hypocrites. We're all hypocrites, right? We all have sin. Because what is so sweet is what he tells the woman after they leave. After they leave, he takes the woman's face in his hands and he says, where are your accusers? And he, there's no one here to accuse you. And, he's, and she says, no, they've all left. And he says, then I don't condemn you either. What kind of authority is that? This, this God in flesh has the authority to look at you and say, I don't condemn you either. And then he says, go and sin no more. He doesn't just give her grace as a license to keep in her back pocket to do whatever she wants to do. But he has the authority. He is God incarnate. And he is here before you today, no matter where you've been, no matter what you've done, no matter what you struggle with, to say, I have the authority to say in Christ, if you are in Christ, if you are in Christ, I don't condemn you. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Receive that grace and then respond and go and run from your sin and get connected to other godly community and and put up boundaries for the things that keep dragging you back into places that you know leave you empty. That's who our God is. That's who Jesus is. That's what he did. He purified and he finished the work. And what that means for us is that if you are in Christ, you are pure and it is done. You don't have to strive anymore. Rest in his grace. Let me pray for you.
Father, we love you. Thank you for how you love us, God. Thank you for your grace, so abundant, God. Um, your character, Jesus, is mind-blowing. Um, who you are and what you've done and then also what you have done for us and what that means for us, Lord, uh, would we not lose sight of it today? Would we truly worship you, not just through song, but God, worship you from a place of gratitude, knowing today, seeing today an authoritative Jesus who showed up so that he might purify us for those who are in this room who are holding on to past shame, um, holding on to maybe current temptation that is still hidden in the dark for them. God, would we believe, would you increase our faith to believe, Lord, that when you say it's finished, it's finished. When you say we are made pure, we are made pure. When you say you no longer condemn us if we are in Christ, then God, would we believe it? And we walk out of here with a burden lifted. And also, God, walk out of here with a motivation to go and sin no more. Not because we're earning it and striving for something, but because we're responding to a powerful God who's already completely finished the work. Would we remember that, Father? And will we bring you glory with our lives? In the name of Jesus, amen.